Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Media Technology and Public Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Sydney, back again today to provide you with your weekly dose of media and public policy info. If you want to learn more about a variety of media and tech policies, please feel free to check out some of our other podcasts, which are released every Friday at 10 a.m. Now, let's get started on today's policy. In May of 2017, the Congolese government made a $5.6 million deal with Mare Group, which is an Israeli security consulting firm with deep links to the Israeli intelligence services. The firm sells surveillance tools to foreign security forces, and its signature product is the Strategic Actionable Intelligence Platform, a big data analytics system that allows users to penetrate closed forums and groups, monitor their activities, and run clandestine investigations. A lot of people found it suspicious that the country's controversial president, Joseph Kabila, who was at the time facing a political crisis at home, was interested in technology that he could easily use against protesters. Digital surveillance isn't the only way that governments try to silence dissenters using the internet, though. Internet blackouts are used to suppress dissent all over the world. The advocacy organization Access Now reported that, in 2016, the list of documented shutdowns had reached 56 and included countries like Algeria, Ethiopia, and Pakistan. In recent years, due to an increase in these types of threats, specifically internet blackouts, the United Nations Human Rights Council has passed a non-binding resolution condemning countries that intentionally disrupt citizens' internet access and has added internet access as a right covered by Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I do think that it is important to note, though, that because the resolution is non-binding, it is also unenforceable. Regardless, the decision to include internet access at all has proven controversial. FCC Commissioner Michael O'Reilly stated in a speech that, quote, It is important to note that internet access is not a necessity in the day-to-day lives of Americans and does not even come close to the threshold to be considered a basic human right, end quote. He continued, stating that he believes that people do a disservice by over-exaggerating the importance of it in people's lives, and that the term necessity should only apply to things that humans absolutely cannot live without, like food, water, and shelter. He also finds the idea that the internet is a necessity to be ludicrous. He is not the only person with this perspective, though, as we will hear in the following clip. qualifications of a human right. One of the most famous people to promote this idea was Vint Cerf, who was coincidentally one of the early pioneers of the internet. In his 2012 New York Times op-ed, Cerf argued that equating the internet with fundamental needs like freedom of speech and freedom of torture is a mistake because over time we will end up valuing the wrong things. Cerf goes on to assert that technology is not a right in and of itself, but rather an enabler of rights, which I will explain. In his opinion, it's a bad idea to exalt any one piece of technology. So for example, he cites that at one point in time, not having a horse made it difficult to go places and do your work, but we weren't just guaranteed the right to a horse because the important right in the scenario was the right to work and make a living, not the right to have a horse. Now, a lot of times people use cars to get to their jobs, but we are not guaranteed the right to cars. We have the right to work and education, but we're not necessarily guaranteed the means to that end. That is our responsibility. 
So according to Surf, just like not every job needed a horse, not every job requires a car, not every job requires the internet. And so because of that, it is a luxury. The internet is a means to an end for some people in order to do their jobs, but not for all people. It's for some people to get their education, but not for all people. And so the internet, based off of this, in his, in his opinion, is a luxury or a privilege, not a right. Although both Cerf and O'Reilly have some pretty strong opinions on this issue, there are a lot of people who disagree with them. Things. Many fall somewhere in between Cerf and Zuckerberg, arguing that people aren't entitled to the internet itself, but that they do have a right to internet access. Specifically, that each country should have a plan to make the internet accessible and affordable to its entire population. A UN Special Rapporteur presented this argument in 2011, and the following year, the UN Human Rights Council overwhelmingly passed a resolution declaring that people have the right to freedom of expression online and that governments cannot block anyone's internet access. According to the United Nations, human rights are, quote, rights inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. Human rights include the right to life and liberty, freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and education, and many more. Everyone is entitled to these rights without discrimination, end quote. And since in today's world, internet access has become essential to a lot of work, education, and expression, many people believe that everyone should have the ability to access it fully and completely. Unlike SURF, they believe that internet access is not necessarily a means to an end, but rather a right within itself. Dr. Merton Reglitz, a lecturer in global ethics at the University of Birmingham, looks beyond education, work, and simple expression, instead noting how important the internet is in politics. According to Reglitz, quote, internet access is no luxury, but instead a moral human right, and everyone should have unmonitored and uncensored access to this global medium, provided free of charge for those unable to afford it. Without such access, many people lack a meaningful way to influence and hold accountable supranational rulemakers and institutions. These individuals simply don't have a say in the making of the rules that they must obey and which shape their life's chances, end quote. This is an important perspective to consider since, as stated earlier, leaders of countries can and do use their control over the internet to silence protesters and to limit and censor information as well as poten potentially spread misinformation. And at the same time, citizens can use the internet to fight back against oppressive regimes as well. The internet, then, in this perspective, can provide not only education, work, and opportunity for expression, but also protection, and thus access to it is a human right. Now, up until this point, we have discussed whether or not we have the right to internet access, but there are many different types of rights. And people with a more moderate viewpoint, such as Dr. Jesse Tamalti, an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Bergen, Norway, believe that internet access is a right, but not a natural one. It's more likely that it's a legal one. According to Tamalti, quote, natural rights are grounded in fundamental interests shared by all or at least the vast majority of humans. On this view, there's a natural right to not be arbitrarily killed because everyone has an important interest in not being killed. 
There is a natural right not to be tortured because everyone has an important interest in not being tortured. There is a natural right not to be forced into slavery because everyone has an important interest in not being enslaved and so on. With this in mind, it's difficult to see how there could be a natural right to the internet access because internet because interest in having access to the internet is not sufficiently fundamental. End quote. She then goes on to reference how, thousands of years ago, humans still had interest in not being killed or enslaved or tortured, but did not have interest in the internet, especially because, well, they couldn't fathom it. And thus, if natural rights are meant to be held universally by all humans simply in virtue of being human, internet access cannot count as a natural right. It is important to note, however, that Dr. Tamalti is not saying that we definitively have or should have a legal right to internet access. In reality, what she's saying is we potentially should have legal right to it. A case can be made for that. However, their case cannot be made, in her opinion, for internet access being a natural right because it's not something that all humans are born with. We're not all born with the desire to use the internet or the need to. It's something that is a result of the world that we currently live in. And so because of that, she is still not on the same page fully of Dr. Reglitz because he believes that all of us should have access to the internet no matter what, all humans all over the world, regardless of anything, whereas O'Reilly and Cerf also might disagree with her or would disagree with her because their point of view is instead that it's not a right at all in any case. She believes that it could be, just not necessarily the ones that we're talking about, not one that necessarily has to be addressed in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So clearly, as we can see from the variety of perspectives that we've looked at today, this is a very nuanced issue, and there are a lot of other perspectives that we haven't even been able to touch on, but unfortunately, we've run out of time. And so I do want to leave you with the question of, is internet access a human right? Or is it just a legal right? Or is it in reality just a privilege that we've all become way too dependent on as people, but in reality, it's not something that we need? Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you tune in next week and I hope you have a great day.